Welcome back to the PFC podcast. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else. Now on to the podcast. Welcome back to the PFC podcast. This is Dennis and today I'm with Eric and Ted. How are you guys doing today? Excellent. Good. Good. Perfect. Good perfect. So uh, the reason why I asked you guys to come on is I would like to know about uh, P. Reboa. Um, you know, I've heard a lot about Reboa to begin with. And uh, since your guys' company is actually producing the catheter, um, why not just go straight to the source, right? So um, since we're going to kick this off, Eric, if you would, uh, please do a quick introduction of yourself. Sure. Uh, my name is Eric. I'm a former Marine Corps corpsman. I did some reconnaissance work as well. I uh, got out. I got my nursing degree. I commissioned in the Army as a nurse, and then I transferred to a civil affairs officer. Uh, I've been doing the trauma thing for just about 25 years, and I work at Pride Time Medical as a the military clinical education manager. Perfect. Ted, how about you? Hi, uh, good morning. My uh, name's Ted Braun. I'm a former, also a former Marine Corps corpsman, uh, now currently a guard flight medic, National Guard flight medic, uh, about 20 or 30 years of experience in the pre-hospital and uh, tactical arena, everything from uh, ground EMS all the way to uh, uh, critical care and flight. Perfect, perfect. And how, I guess how long have you guys worked at Pritime? On this on this particular project, uh, uh, this project I've worked. I mean, we've been doing this particular thing since <laughs> the beginning of this year. Okay, okay, ten. Yeah, same. I've been at Pride Time. Same, yeah, I've been at Pride Time since uh, August of uh, twenty twenty two. All right, nice. So this is relatively new, um, but uh, you guys took this over to Ukraine to train some of their medical personnel. Um, so I guess, can you uh, kind of walk me through that? What was the training? Uh, who was present? Sure. Um, as far as I go, I have been, or my team has been over there for over just about two months total, um, seven different trips. Uh, and the training, um, we go to their location, um, whichever units we are training. And it's usually their surgical teams to include emergency surgeons, some medics, nurses, uh, surgical techs, although I don't believe they call them surgical techs. Uh, and the training consists of um, a slide presentation, so some didactic stuff. Uh, and then that usually takes maybe 15 minutes. And then the rest of the time, we do uh, pretty thorough one-on-one -on -one training. We usually have two um, simulation devices there that we're able to train with. Uh, and we will go as deep as they need to go to where they're able to teach it back to us. Um, and they're able to understand the patient population they're putting this in um, and able to uh, confidently perform the procedure. Um, and we do, we also do bring physicians as well. So it's not just me, um, by myself. It has been, but most of the time we bring a physician from the States, uh, that is very well versed in Reboa and the procedure to, uh, run that other simulator to be able to 
make sure we get the most effect for them. And it's obviously it's all humanitarian work that we've done over there. Yeah. Um, I guess how many, like how many reps does it, does a student get? As many as they need. Uh, so depends on their level, right? So the medics, uh, will let them run through it because I, I personally think it's, uh, very important for them to be able to understand the procedure. So that way when it's happening, they understand what they need to do. Um, cause they over there, they do, uh, do it a bit differently than we do it in the States, obviously for lack of some supplies or, um, the amount of supplies that they have to actually utilize. Uh, so medics will get a little bit of training on it. Um, they'll run through it. They'll get the whole catheter brief and they'll be able to practice. Um, but, um, usually it's not uh, a ton of training that they want or need. Um, and then the surgeons and the anesthesia providers, those are the ones uh, they're usually teamed up together, uh, and they're the ones that really will do a deep dive with. I mean, I've spent, you know, three, four hours with a few surgeons and anesthesiologists that I knew were going to use the catheter. Um, and yeah, it's been, it's been great. I mean, their success rate is, uh, it's great. All right. Perfect. Perfect. Um, so they go through the training. Is there any kind of uh, sustainment plan uh, in place already? How frequently uh, would that be? So how frequently would I like it to be? Um, I'd like it to be an every two to three month thing. Um, operationally, uh, it's been, I would say we've broken those trips up, um, about that, about spacing them out about that much, uh, to include the seven trips. Um, and any questions that they have or any complications, uh, that they can think of as far as after the training, not necessarily complications, but, you know, they do the training and then they go back to their unit and they're like, oh, I wish I would ask that question. They all have me on signal. Um, I do telemedicine consults with them in case they have questions. Um, and they also, um, we're in contact frequently. I would say probably every other day I get a text from at least one of the people that I've trained or one of the teams. Uh, and they update me on, you know, like what they've done, if they've used any, how the procedure went, patient outcomes, pretty detailed. Um, and, uh, yeah. And so I'd say the sustainment that I'd like to see is, uh, every three months, I would say that same for stateside also. Um, just over there, it's a little bit difficult to, uh, to be able to do it every three months. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That uh, pesky thing called war happens exactly. and throws everything off. Um, so perfect. Perfect. So um, obviously the training was successful and, and their capabilities are increased and that's always good. Right. Now, if we could start going into the actual P. Reboa catheter, um, like I said, I'm a little bit familiar with the actual the original Reboa catheter. What are, what are the differences between these two things? Uh, so I'll tell you, there's uh, three different versions of the device. Right? The first one that came out was called the ER Reboa. Um, it's very much a parallel upgrade to the ER Reboa Plus, which is what the military is accustomed to seeing right now, the U.S. military, well, really all NATO military. Um, and the difference between those two uh, are are very slim. Um, there's a couple markings that are different and, uh, there's also a tag that they added to be able to write when the balloon goes up and blood pressures and things like that. 
The real difference is when you get into the P verboa and P stands for partial. Um, it, the catheters look the same at first look, but once you actually hold them in your, in your hand, you will see that the catheter itself, the balloon port has a safety valve on it. It will not allow you to inflate the catheter too fast or too much. It just kind of blows off the, the saline. Mm-hmm. Um, and the balloon itself, the older balloon, the ER Reboa and the ER Reboa plus were compliant balloons, meaning they just filled whatever space you put them in. Uh, these ones are semi compliant They they are a different material, uh, and they have these ridges on them. Um, and the ridges allow for blood to go past the balloon while still occluding enough to increase the patient's stability threshold. So that's the big difference that you still are able to get the patient stable enough as well as still maintain some type of perfusion below the balloon, which you couldn't technically do that with the first iteration. Okay. Okay. Um, so, you know, the original Roboa, um, inflation times were very limited and at least in the austere environment, it made it almost impractical. Um, when you're talking about zone one, you know, just above the diaphragm, 30 minutes. I'm barely getting done with my telemedicine call before <laughs> in within 30 minutes, let alone that and transport and uh, getting them under the knife. You mm-hmm. know, um, zone three, uh, just below the the uh, kidneys there, um, you get about an hour, right? So um, what kind of balloon times can I get with this partial Reboa? So the beauty of the partial Reboa, like I said, um, is that you still maintain some form of perfusion below the balloon. So those times of uh, 30 and 60 minutes that you're getting with the plus balloon or even the ER Reboa, um, they're able to be extended because you're able to continue having occlusion or uh, partial occlusion below the balloon. Um, and we have case studies that we've seen, uh, well over two hours, um, uh, in the States and which I'll let Ted talk about a little bit and, mm-hmm. as well as, uh, in Ukraine. Okay. Uh, so Ted, you're the, the master of the numbers. Um, so two hours is, is about as far as you've gone. Uh, that's kind of the, the, the grouping of it, but we've actually okay. gone upwards of that. We've gone upwards of, of three or four hours in okay. zone one of partial okay. occlusion. So it, it's it's definitely increasing our capabilities. Um, and we've been able to do that on, on multiple occasions without a significant in- increase of kidney injury or ischemic insult. Okay. All right. Excellent. Excellent. And obviously that was one of the major concerns with the original Reboa is essentially you're cutting this person in half at the diaphragm, not getting, not perfusing anything below that. Um, so let's just kind of compare and contrast the, the complications of it. Obviously, you know, you with the original Reboa, you're not getting any perfusion whatsoever. So what, what were the, the complications of that? The, the complications with, with the P Reboa, it, it, the concerns are all the same as just Reboa in general because you're limiting blood flow uh, past mm-hmm. the balloon. But with the partial, we're able to kind of titrate it and everything else. But the big 
the concerns are still the same. Uh, what we're currently involved in a, a DOD funded study that is uh, measuring four specific things. It's measuring uh, the time of occlusion, so the total length of occlusion. It's measuring the ischemic markers to see uh, any kind of measurement of uh, injury past uh, time, tolerance to reperfusion, and blood product use. So those okay. are the four. Those are the four main metrics that that we're looking at with the DoD study. And so far, everything is it's it's very early in the study, but everything is still looking pretty promising right now. Nice. So, I mean, I could see where the benefit of the original Ebola, you're stopping all blood flow. So obviously, you're not bleeding through the injury anymore, right? You're perfusing the heart, the lungs, the brain. That's about it. <clears throat> Um, so you're keeping them alive long enough to get them to surgery to fix fix the actual injury. Um, so as far as blood product use, you pretty essentially stopped it once you got the upper half of their body resuscitated. Now with the partial Ebola, like I guess what amount of reduction in in product use are you seeing? I don't know if that if that's making sense, but you're still going to have to use product. Obviously, it's going to be reduced. Uh, Ted, I'll take this. Uh, so most of the surgeons in the States, um, that when they go to inflate the balloon, uh, they go from almost like a wide open uh, usage of products. So think MTP. As the balloon goes up, uh, they significantly limit the amount that they actually need to in, to maintain the patient's stability. Cause now you're almost using the balloon. Um, you're titrating the balloon to the patient's perfusion metric that you want to see. You're not shooting blood into them to maintain the perfusion that you want to see. So by being able to do that and still maintaining the partial uh, occlusion, which is maintaining flow below, you're able to significantly uh, decrease the amount of blood products. That's one of the main things that we've seen, um, at least that the surgeons tell us, is is uh, a benefit of the partial occlusion. I don't know, Ted, do you want to add to that? No, it's definitely a benefit has been reduced pl blood product usage, uh, better visibility once they get into the patient and they open the patient up. Now there's not a whole lot of blood filling up the cavity. And they can actually see the partial occlusion working because they can see that the organs are pink and not grayed out and not having issues. So th there's uh, definitely multiple benefits that they've observed, less blood use, less product use in general, uh, better uh, reperfusion once they come off the balloon, better ability to reperfuse without without uh, any kind of issues after that. Uh, just a, like a couple of the multiple um improvements that they, they've noticed with this balloon. Okay. Now, um, just back to just the blood products, and then I'd like to go over some of the uh, reperfusion injury prevention things. Um, so I imagine in Ukraine, same issues we have on and FSTs while we're deployed uh, is amount of blood product. And, you know, you may have 10, 20 units on one guy, you're okay, but you start getting multiple casualties, like that that gets uh, drained really quick, right? So, um, in the in the case studies or the reports that you're getting from U or Ukraine, I'm guessing they also have a limited amount of blood product available. 
Are they, with even with just that limited amount, are they able to sustain a patient long enough to get them back to some kind of definitive surgical repair? Absolutely. Um, I couldn't tell you the exact number of cases that are done. I would, I'd like to think it's probably well over 30. Um, but I can tell you that uh, I have pretty detailed knowledge of 10 of these cases. Uh, and every single one of the cases except one that um, I, I, I don't have that much detail on, but I know the patient didn't make it. Um, actually, I have 11 cases now because I just got one yesterday. Uh, so 10 of these cases, the patient has come in um, a few times in arrest where instead of opening up and doing a thoracotomy like we would do in the States, they put the balloon up and we're able to get ROSC, um, stabilize that patient, and then transport them out. They're literally coming through something called a stabilization point. Um, think of it as like a DSERT team. Uh, and they, they put the balloon in and they're able to transfer them to a more definitive care area. Um, and they, uh, in some of the, um, some of the reports, it, it does detail how much blood products they've used. Um, I haven't seen any that have been over 2000 milliliters. Uh, so you got to think maybe four, three to four units of blood that they're actually having. And that's combined products. So plasma, blood, platelets, um, it's in really in some, some of the videos, uh, or tele telemedicine consults, you hear them in the background saying, okay, we've used up the blood products and now we have to do something else. So it's the same very real issue there. Uh, but they are able to use less blood products, um, whether they want to or not, um, right. they're able to use less blood products and still have a stable critical, but stable patient to transport to another surgeon to be able to, uh, um, have definitive hemorrhage control or definitive care. Okay. So, I mean, four units, let's say that's the average. Um, I mean, that's still pretty incredible considering the type of injury that's probably going to require something that like a Reboa or P Reboa. Um, so let's talk about some of the, uh, the reperfusion injury complications and things like that. So how are they monitoring, uh, for this? And what are they doing as far as treatments and maintaining that uh, or holding back that uh, ischemic injury? So two-part answer for you. I'll tell you what they're doing uh, overseas, and then Ted can speak to what they're doing in the States. Okay. Uh, so overseas, uh, most of these cases from two particular teams that I'm regularly in contact with, they, uh, they utilize sodium bicarbonate and they mm -hmm. utilize um, calcium, uh, and they like to utilize plasma um, when available. Uh, and that's what they're doing to really mitigate that reperfusion injury. Um, and also using the partial occlusion is really what mitigates the likelihood, I'll say, of the reperfusion injury, because you're not stopping all flow. Um, even if you stop it for a little bit, most of the time you're opening that balloon back up and letting some flow through once you've kind of stabilized the patient. Um, so I would say that's what they're doing over there. Um, and you know, they have different times when they actually give that, um, whether it's when they take the balloon down or during the procedure. Um, but that's what we're seeing over there that they're doing. And then Ted, you want to talk about the States? 
Yeah, and stateside, it's a lot of it is just the the same standard treatment for any kind of reperfusion injury in in the past, also. But like Eric said, with the partial, the beauty of the partial is that you're allowing blood flow to get past. So you, that in and of itself is cutting down on the potential for reperfusion injuries because you're just constantly able to kind of circulate the blood and, and stop the, the buildup of those issues. So uh, that's the biggest thing. And if they if they start to see any issues, then like Eric said, bicarb, calcium, the just the standard, the common standard practice for it. But the beauty is with the partial occlusion. Right. Right. No, that makes sense. I mean, are they watching the EKGs or are they doing eye stats or are they or all the above? Yeah, all the above. Yeah, they're doing all the above. They're they're watching the the, the cardiac. They're watching the, the uh, lab values they're doing even after uh, Reboa usage. They're doing your your regular checkups, your Dopplers, your post 24s, things like that. So it, it's all it's it, a lot of it is just the same standard practice that they're watching for and that they're that they're keeping up with. But with the partial, okay. we're able to go. I guess kind yeah, of similar. One, oh, uh, I was going to say one thing I will say as far as the usage is uh, concerned in Ukraine. Um, they don't have a lack of patient population to utilize. But right. like we stated with the blood products, they have a lack of product to be yeah. able to utilize on the patients. And we, we do our best to be able to get them product, but there's a lag time, obviously, as it has to go through a bunch of different hands before it actually gets to them. Um, I just wanted to say that. Yeah, of course. You know, um, there's a lot of need all over the place. So being able to allocate uh, resources is, is going to be difficult. Um, it, I mean, it's difficult in the U.S. and we don't have a war going on here. Um, um, what I was asking as far as, um, you know, signs that they're looking for, would that be similar to like a crush type syndrome where you're seeing like the... Uh, the peak T waves and, and things like that. I guess I've never seen ischemia on an EKG. Hyper, I mean, yeah, you'd be looking at hyperkalemia, increased lactic acid. And Ted, do you want to add to that? I would. Yeah, no, I, I, that's typically what you're looking for. The all that. Okay. Okay. Now, um, I'd like to ask about placement of the catheter. So, you know, from my end of the the spectrum, you know. Lots of packing, you know, junctional type tourniquets or things like that. Well, that's all occupying generally the space where you're trying to put this catheter. Um, so, I guess, like, how do you how do you even begin to place this catheter when you have my, you know, all my gauze, my ace wrap, my pelvic binders, et cetera, et cetera? Like, how do you how do you get this done? Uh, so. There is one case in particular uh, talking about not necessarily pelvic binder, which pelvic binder isn't really a contraindication. Like you, what I've seen in the States uh, is they just cut and then they go right into that area. Like they just cut a piece, say a teapot, they'll just cut mm -hmm. a piece of it out and then put it in. Um, but to your point, um, we can even add uh, abdominal junctional tourniquet to that. And yeah. then I'll tell you about a case that patient came in in peri-arrest um, they had an abdominal tourniquet on, uh, some other issues, obviously, um, patient arrested in front of this particular team and they did a quick fast on the patient, saw they had blood in the abdomen, 
um, put the Reboa, got access, put the Reboa up into zone one. And the way that you know you're in zone one quickly is because there's markings on the catheter itself that are predetermined where zone one and zone three are. Mm -hmm. uh, and they put the catheter up, they blew the balloon up, took the abdominal tourniquet off, uh, did one round of CPR and were able to get that patient back. Um, so the interventions that you do don't necessarily get in the way of being able to do this, uh, at the right time. Um, I could certainly see how it seems that they could. Um, but I mean, that's, that's what I would say. And I mean, what do you think, Ted? I agree. I think I think it's a lot of it is just concurrent treatment going on at the same time. But as far as access, it's just trying to work around it because at the end of the day, you only need about a dime size or, or quarter size worth of space to get your your vascular access. So whether okay. it's cutting a hole out of the teapot or okay, so you're essentially you're going after that femoral triangle. Is that correct, or you're going above? Now you go above, you go to the common femoral artery. So where they come together, that triangle comes together a little bit above that is what you're doing or where you're accessing. And I would say, um, talking Ukraine now, 90% uh, of the cases are done with bedside ultrasound or handheld, okay. I should say, not bedside. Um, yeah. yeah. So. Okay. Perfect. So something like a butterfly or, or something like that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Too easy. Um, so we talked about the complications. Now, for your specific training in Ukraine, it seems like you're kind of targeting like the, the surgeons, anesthesia, or like the, the bread and butter of what you're going for. Obviously, you're training the support personnel around them so that at least they're aware of what's going on. But the bread and butter was the surgical side of things. Um, now, a layman such as myself was like, well, they're surgeons. Why are they doing the Reboa? Why don't they just fix the problem to begin with? Um, you know, so maybe some of that kind of a resource intensive, uh, resource intensive type procedure. Um, Cause I know one of the things that is going on uh, on our side is that they want to make these surgical teams smaller and smaller and smaller. And, it seems like a good idea on paperwork, but that also reduces your capability over and over and over again. Um, so I guess, I don't know why, I guess, why do they want to do Reboa versus just fix the actual problem, fix the vasculature directly? Uh, so I'll, yeah, I can talk about in Ukraine side. Uh, sure. The reason they're putting the catheter in, they're putting, so they have these things called stabilization points. And okay. that's exactly what they do there. They stabilize the patient as best they can, ship them to, say, an FST. That's not exact terminology, but yeah. I'm, pull the parallel. Uh, so, the, and some of these stabilization points at the height of things, they're seeing like 10 to 150 patients. Mm. And, and there's a couple docs there. One's anesthesia, you know, one's an emergency surgeon. There's a couple nurses, a couple medics. Um, there, there's a couple stretchers, you know, there's like goats running around and whatnot. So they, the resource management in that area, um, and the time management in that area, they are only stabilizing and then shipping out as soon as they can. Uh, so that's why, um, at least in Ukraine, that's where I, I primarily see it getting put in. Have I seen it get it put in, uh, later? Yes. But I'd say 90% of those cases are 
stabilization point driven. Okay. So they just don't have the capability. They don't have enough hands to do the more definitive surgery where they are. Correct. So they're using this as a stopgap to get them farther up the line. Okay. So if it's, you know, if it's good for the surgeon to do that, why can't I just start throwing them in my aid bag? And uh, now I have two hands. I'm smart enough. Um, why can I not do this on the X? Ted, do you want to take that one? <laughs> I have I have opinions, but I'll let yeah. Ted I'll let Ted go That's first. Okay. Go ahead and flame me. <laughs> You're on mute, buddy. So this is where we kind of uh, have to uh, be careful regarding uh, what we're commenting on versus opinion sure. versus because we both yes. have experience on the military side, but we're also yeah. beholden to the company and to FDA yeah. regulations and uh, things like that. Uh, I think uh, the difficulties you would run into in that setting is going to kind of uh, – resort back to just level the training also because you're talking about gaining vascular access, utilizing ultrasound, uh, monitoring, doing pressure monitoring, uh, and understanding the pressure monitoring and understanding all of those things and how they all fit together. So it, it's going to get, it gets kind of complicated with that. It's something that can be trained to. It's something that, uh, Eric trains to, all the time with, with the groups he works with. It's something that I train to all the time when I'm working in the hospital stateside. Uh, the same way that Eric works with uh, his groups in my hospitals, I work with the nurses, I work with the physicians, I work with anesthesia with all of them because it's kind of a team approach to it. Um, as far as what's keeping you from putting it in your aid bag, I would say it's capabilities and, and protocols, I okay. think. And I, I, uh, I think that's probably about the the best way that I can answer that. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's the nicest way. Yeah, getting yes. ourselves into trouble. <laughs> yeah. Um, Go ahead, Eric. Yeah, to, I mean, I, I agree with everything Ted said. Um, it, it's not it's not necessarily a knowledge lacking situation. Um, I'd say there's probably two main reasons why uh, you're not putting it on the X. Um, it's, it'll be time. Time is probably the biggest one. Um, and there's, uh, extra curricular activities happening around you that will also take up your time. So you're not really going to be able to set everything out. And I'm not saying you can't do it rapidly, uh, but you wouldn't necessarily have the amount of time hands, um, or safety, to be able to just get it all done there. Um, yeah. As far as putting it in your aid bag, um, the best example I can think of for that, as far as my experience goes, um, when, when my FST broke down into like two ghost FSTs and then further into a damage control resuscitation team where there's only five of us, uh, that's a capability that we carried. Um, and, you know, in those scenarios, your expectation for patient care, what you're supposed to be able to take care of is very limited. Sometimes only two resuscitations or one massive surgery, which can, you know, put you dark real quick. Uh, it can be a, just as it is 
as we're seeing in the States. And also, as we're seeing in Ukraine, it's a stopgap, as you stated. Uh, and it can buy you time to be able to uh, get the definitive hemorrhage control you need. Um, but on the X, I think it's a, I don't think we're, we're there yet. I don't even want yeah. to say quite there yet. I don't think we're there yet. I think we have years and years to, before we get to that. But that's not saying that a couple of clicks away, you you wouldn't be, you know, you'd have a D-cert team there and they'd mm-hmm. be totally fine putting it in. And Ted, would you agree with that? I would, I would agree with that because I, th- I think you're limited by your equipment. You're limited by, like you talked about, like having a butterfly, having a V-scan, understanding how to use all that. And just like Eric said, having the uh, tactical time to be able to incorporate that, that's going to be your bigger challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I run into this issue all the time is that um, medics see a new thing and there's like, there's, don't get me wrong, there is an actual problem. Like when you're talking about, you know, junctional, junctional hemorrhage, um, you know, gunshot wound to the box, like that is, that's a major problem, and we don't really have a great answer for that on the medic side. So the desire is, well, let me go find an answer, and now I can be the savior of everyone. Medics forget, like, this is a portion of my job is the actual medicine, right? I'm expected to carry ammo. I'm expected to be a warfighter. I'm expected to be a tactician, use a radio, like all these other things. And that's over and above what I'm supposed to remember, what my actual job is, is being a medic. And so the amount of training that I get just doing the medical part starts to fall by the wayside pretty quick when you talk about all the other things you have to be able to do. Now you throw on top of something that we already talked about. Ideally, every three months, you're going through another training cycle on this one procedure for a small amount of patients you're probably going to run into. The bang for the buck is probably not there, my opinion, at this moment in time. Um, That's just the training side of it, let alone... The resource side of it, where it's not as simple as it's not a, a long IV catheter that you're sticking up into somebody's diaphragm um, and inflating it. Like this is a, a bit more complicated um, with actual consequences if you screw it up. So um, that's why I asked you that question because this is kind of a hot topic and. I know there's a lot of medics out there. They're like, I'm going to go find me one and I'm going to stick it in my bag and I'll watch some YouTube videos and I'll know how to do it. Um, there is way more to it than that. And not only is it initial learning of that skill, it's actual sustainment of that skill. And those things are not cheap. So um, both money-wise and time-wise, being able to stay on top of this one procedure when you have many, many, many other procedures that are, I would say, a bigger bang for the buck, being able to be a master of. Again, just my opinion. Um, when it comes to uh, P. Reboa, um, I guess you've done you've done your your training cycles in Ukraine. I'm sure 
those things will continue at some pace. Um, I guess, what are your plans going forward in the future? As far as sustainment training for the Ukraine? Sustainment or like, I guess, what's next? So we've done, you've done case studies. Mm-hmm. Are, I'm guess I'm assuming act, uh, randomized controlled trials or do you want more, a little more definitive research being done on this? Yeah, we are. We're looking at all options to get more definitive research. Uh, obviously, for the U.S. military, this is something that I think I personally think could benefit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that is something that we're we're looking at all avenues to be able to um, get all the data um, collected and in some type of presentable format to be able to be useful. Um, as Ted likes to say, a lot of this is anecdotal, although the data that is coming out of Ukraine, you know, it is factual, but there's nothing uh, controlled about it. Right. Um, so obviously we're, we're always looking at ways to be able to, uh, to change that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Ted, any final thoughts? Uh, not really. No, I'm just, I'm, I'm happy to be a part of this. I, I spent so many years at the just at the bedside taking care mm-hmm. of all these patients that you just had trouble doing these things and transporting these patients that were just you you go into a hospital or a facility and they give you a bag full of blood and say, Here you go, good luck. And yeah. uh just so I'm I'm happy to kind of be a part of this, something that I really truly believe in and that I, I think it's it's got a lot of promise and a lot of uh uh, potential just in my own personal use uh, with my job in the military and things like that. Yeah, actually, you, you reminded me something. So you mentioned, you know, transporting with the P. Raboa and it like blew people's minds. Like, how are they securing this in place? Are they just suturing it to the skin or? Um, in in Ukraine, they will use a uh, like a five French catheter clamp and suturing it in most of the time. Sometimes they do skin staples. Okay. Um, stateside, Ted can speak to this. Uh, they use a five French catheter clamp that comes because we have a convenience kit that comes with the uh, catheter clamp and some sutures. And they'll use the sutures to be able to stabilize the catheter to where it doesn't come out. Um, mm. While they're not transporting, uh, in the States, they are putting it in, in the trauma bay and then going to other care areas to get more definitive idea of what's going on before they go to the OR, mm-hmm. um, you know, and draw the parallels as you wish. But, uh, yeah, so that, that's, that's the way that they secure. I mean, Ted, is that accurate? Yeah, it's accurate. Cause you have the catheter that goes in through a seven French sheath. So you suture that in place, and then the catheter goes in through that. The Rebeau catheter goes in through that, and then that's secured with the uh, securement clamp, like Eric said, and then that's sutured down. Uh, and then you'll have some surgeons. It's like it's like anything else. Uh, you'll have some surgeons, oh, I'll do this too, or I'll do this. But um, that, that's the most common method. Yeah. And obviously, you know, it's one thing to go from the ER to, you know, interventional radiology or going to the OR. You know, you're you're essentially just sliding around on a bed and like the movement side to side is relatively minimal versus Ukraine. You're getting thrown in the back of an ambulance. You're bouncing across, um, you know, you know, pothole roads and bombed out roads. 
um, hard turns, going real fast to you know whatever definitive treatment is. So obviously, whatever securing method you have, it's going to have to be pretty robust because he's going to get bounced around a lot. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're lucky if you're getting in an ambulance. Um, but yeah, no, it, that's majority of what I've seen is uh, using the catheter clamp and suturing it in pretty decently um, or skin staples. And it gets you the same thing for your buck, essentially. One takes just a tiny bit longer. I mean, the entire procedure itself is not difficult, right? Uh, it's gaining vascular access, putting a catheter in, blowing a balloon up. The intricacies are with the education that you have of where and what that's going to affect, how you can mitigate it, and then having a plan of who's going to actually fix what you're mitigating. Um, and that's why to, to your initial or your your question about putting it on the X, there's just a lot of other stuff going through your mind, uh, not to mention all the other stuff we talked about. Um, while the procedure and the muscle reps that you could get or muscle memory reps you could get by doing sustainment training, I still um, I still don't think it's a X device yet. Um, but, you know, there are studies that are out that say the more you do something, uh, the better you are at it. So that's true. That's true. <laughs> true. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, do you guys have any, anything else you'd like us to know? Um, I mean, I'll plug the company just because sure, if go that's ahead. okay. Yeah. So if anyone has any questions about this, uh, I would direct them to the website first, uh, prytimemedical.com at prytime, P-R-Y timemedical.com. Um, if anyone has any um, questions where they don't want or they are not finding the answer, they can email me. Um, it's E-A-K-R-I-S-H at PrideTimeMedical.com. Um, and then we can continue the conversation there. Okay. Um, if I wanted training um, and you guys are the only ones who can do it, how can I organize some kind of training? Same way. You Same can way. email me. Or you could, there's a inquiries tab on our website uh, that links to an email address. And you could put all relevant information in there and we'll get back to you. All right. Perfect. Well, thank you guys very much. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. That's it for today's podcast. Be sure to go to our website, www.prolongfieldcare.org. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Subscribe and stay on the bleeding edge of combat medicine. This is Dennis for the PFC Podcast. Our boy is waiting there for you.